Thanks for joining us on the Museum Revealed podcast. This episode was recorded using Skype, so you may hear a bit of background noise, which we like to call atmosphere. We hope you enjoy this episode too, so let's get started. Imagine you're a scientist diving into the freezing cold waters of the Antarctic. You're not there to observe the larger organisms so closely associated with that part of the world, whales, seals, and impossibly cute penguins, but the smallest, the marine invertebrates. What is it about these lesser-known creatures, the ones we rarely think of, that would entice you into those icy waters? Dr Sue Ann Watson, Senior Curator of Marine Invertebrates at Queensland Museum Network and Senior Research Fellow at James Cook University, has the answers to share today with me, Laura Cantrell, Museum Graphic Designer and sometimes podcast host, and you. Hi, Sue Ann. Hi, Laura. Can you tell us what is a marine invertebrate? Yeah, so a marine invertebrate is an animal, obviously marine, it means that it lives in the ocean. And the invertebrate part means that these animals have no vertebral column, so they don't have any spines or backbones. And actually, most of animals on Earth, except for a very few animals uh, in the subphylum vertebrata, which have backbones, including us. What are some examples of marine invertebrates? So they are animals that include things like the mollusks, which is this really big group of marine invertebrates that includes snails, clams, oysters, squid, octopus, uh, cuttlefish, um, and also another group called echinoderms, which literally translated means spiny skin. And this group includes animals like sea urchins, sea cucumbers and sea stars. And I also have um, crustaceans, which we're quite familiar with, our crabs, our prawns, um, also uh, hermit crabs or lobsters, and then lots and lots of other smaller, lesser-known groups of um, marine animals also fit into this, like the worms um, and animals called brachiopods, which are also known as lampshells. That's quite a range. And what is it about this group of animals that's so interesting to you? So, yeah, I find invertebrates really um, interesting because, as I sort of mentioned, that they do make up most of the animals that we have on Earth. And so this foundation of animals on our planet tends to form uh, this, these really big foundation levels of food webs on Earth. So they're really important in that. And they're also often little studied or understudied in particular areas, including on coral reefs. And there's this huge diversity of invertebrate, and they can also, in certain areas, be really abundant. So they're uh, really important in structuring our food webs and our marine ecosystems. So to me, these kinds of characteristics make invertebrates a really good study organism. So, for example, we can use them to start to answer scientific research questions that we might ask. If they're abundant uh, and they're more easy to collect than large animals, we're able to use these in the aquarium type setting to find out, for example, how animals might fare under different conditions. So they're a bit easier to study than animals such as whales um, uh, or, yeah, or dolphins or, or penguins in, in that regard. So that's, I think, why I tend to like working with them. 
I recently learned about the humpback conch, which is also known as a jumping snail. You've been involved in an experiment testing their willingness to jump. Can you tell us what you discovered? Yeah, so the, um, yeah, the jumping snails are really interesting for me. So they have this very special adaptation, which is a modified foot. So a snail is also known as a, um, so a gastropod, which kind of means a stomach foot. So they have this foot that extends out of their shell. And they also have a shell trap door, which is known as an operculum. So they use this modified foot and this shell trap door to extend rapidly, and this allows them to jump away. And they use this when they're faced with a scary situation. So it could be that they're faced with a predator, such as a venomous cone snail, um, which is trying to harpoon them. Um, so... They're really amazing animals if you want to start to test, for example, how different environmental conditions might affect their behaviour. So we use the jumping snails because we wanted to see if behaviour in these marine invertebrates change when they were exposed to future ocean conditions that are projected for the next few decades and towards the end of the century. If you'd like to see a jumping snail in action, check out Sue Ann's video. The link is in the show notes. Sue Ann, you've been looking at the impacts of ocean acidification. Can you give us Ocean Acidification 101? Yes, sure. So ocean acidification is um, something that's happening with global change. So um, fossil fuel burning and deforestation is causing a rise in atmospheric carbon dioxide. Um, this is increasing at a rate that we haven't seen for hundreds of thousands of years and potentially millions of years. What happens is that the oceans absorb about a third of all of this carbon dioxide and they act like a giant sponge. So this is better for us on land because without this ocean um, absorption of carbon dioxide, we'd see higher temperatures on land. But what happens in the ocean is that carbon dioxide reacts with seawater to form carbonic acid and it also triggers a set of chemical equations that um, change the chemistry of seawater. And so it's a bit like sparkling water. Carbon dioxide is that same gas that we have in our bottle of sparkling water. And so it's this carbonic acid that's formed from the carbon dioxide that makes the water a little bit more acidic and causes this, um, this phenomenon known as ocean acidification. Does it have any effects on marine invertebrates? Yeah, so what we're finding, and scientists have been looking at this for perhaps about the last 15 or so years, is that ocean acidification makes shell formation more difficult in marine invertebrates. It changes things like their growth um, as well as their ability to form their shell. And so this results in effects on their survival. So one example is that the oyster industry edible oysters on the west coast of the United States is already seeing effects of ocean acidification in the hatchery. So they're getting uh, increased mortality of baby oysters because these baby oysters within the first couple of days have to grow their shell, which is about 90% of their total weight. So they're seeing these um, dramatic uh, mortalities in, in their baby oysters. So we've had sort of big failures there. Now, we're also seeing different um, effects of ocean acidification in marine animals, and this includes in, in their, inside their bodies. So the acidity affects the physiology, 
and, and the chemistry inside animals' bodies. And so this can lead to changes in things like their metabolism. More recently, however, we've been looking at the effects on behaviour of marine invertebrates with ocean acidification. And this has been fairly surprising. We've discovered that acidification alters the way that marine invertebrates behave. So, for example, when invertebrates are exposed to carbon dioxide levels projected in the oceans and towards the end of the century, if we continue business as usual, we see that ocean acidification causes increases in activity. It means that they're less likely to avoid predators. So, for example, with our jumping snails, they were less likely to jump away from predators in these ocean acidification conditions. Um, and if they did choose to jump, they took longer to think about it before they did jump. And they jumped along a trajectory that was actually closer to the predator instead of moving um, in the best direction to escape the predator. If we look at predators like squid, for example, we're finding that they're worse at catching their prey. So we're seeing this range uh, of effects on different levels of marine invertebrate in the food web. And because marine systems are really complex, what we're starting to see is that it's likely to be very hard to predict how um, marine invertebrates and indeed other marine animals like fish will um, be affected by ocean acidification in terms of their behaviour. So it's likely that these consequences of altered behaviour overall will be hard to predict in the marine ecosystem. Part of your job is to collect data and specimens in the field. What are some of the locations you've travelled to for research? I've been really lucky to travel to amazing places for research and they include places like Singapore to collect clams and French Polynesia to work on a project on seahares and the UK where I've worked on snails and urchins and the Indian Ocean where I've worked on deep sea marine invertebrates and perhaps one of the coolest places literally is Antarctica where I worked on shallow water marine invertebrates for three and a half months. What's it like to dive in Antarctica? Yeah, so obviously it's really cold. So the water temperature can actually be as low as about minus 1.8 degrees C. And that's because seawater doesn't freeze at zero degrees. It actually can get colder before it does freeze. And it can go up to about plus one degree. So even in the warmest time of year, it's really cold. And it tends to be about minus 0.7 degrees C in general. So there's lots and lots of dive gear that we need to wear to help prepare for these cold waters and protect our bodies. So we have about 50 kilograms of gear in total. We have our dry suit, really thick hoods, um, three-finger gloves to help keep our hands warm but still allow us to do some work underwater. We have extra dive weights to keep us down once we've got all of this equipment on. Um, tanks, uh, full face masks, which is actually really important because if we just were to wear the normal little face mask to cover our eyes, our uh, rest of our face would get really cold. So, so that's important to have that full face mask. And that also allows us to have communication so we can actually talk to the other diver that we're down with and we can talk to the boat. And we're all right together, so one diver to the next and then that diver to the boat. Yeah, it's really exciting once you get down there, but it is quite a lot of preparation to get in the water. 
Can you describe for us what it feels like when you're under the water in Antarctica? Yeah, so I guess that it's it's kind of a relief to get in the water because if you if you have to walk down to the the um, often you dive off the boat, but sometimes you might have to walk down the the little boat ramp to get in the water. And so once you're in, you become weightless, and you do know that it's cold because you feel cool, but you've got all of this amazing equipment on to help prepare you. Um, and then, of course, overhead, you've got some ice. So we went in the summer. We didn't dive through the ice, but we had ice around us when we were diving um, on the boat. And you see all these amazing marine animals that you've only ever seen in photographs before um, that you might get, like, urchins, uh, you get lots of limpets, you, have, you get clams, um, these animals called brachiopods are actually really abundant in Antarctica. Um, and they're not so abundant in other places in the world. So you, you get these animals that really only kind of see in these polar areas. Um, and one of the reasons that we see this amazing diversity of marine invertebrate in polar areas in the shallow seas is that we actually don't have shell-crushing predators in Antarctica because it's actually too cold for them to survive. So we see lots and lots of animals that are really abundant that we don't see in warmer water ecosystems like in temperate and tropical locations. Well, speaking of tropical locations, you're now based at our Townsville campus, Museum of Tropical Queensland. What comparisons have you observed between the cold Antarctic and the warm North Queensland environment? Yeah, so it's obviously going from polar to tropical marine environments is this really huge change. And it's interesting because the tropics are, are warmer and we think that they, um, they tend to be quite stable in temperature, but actually they, they do range. So around Townsville, where I'm based, we have about a 22 to 28.5 degree C um, range in water temperature. So we've, we've got some range there. Obviously, it's, it's warmer in summer when we go diving and it's a little bit cooler in our winter time, but, but not that cool. We also see this really high diversity of marine invertebrates. Um, and we can see animals that perhaps low in abundance or they might be more well hidden because we do have these kinds of shell crushing predators in these ecosystems. I guess obviously being warmer, it's easier to do field work and to go diving uh, and also to collect marine invertebrates in general. So logistically, it is easier to work in the tropics. And I also found that Working in the aquarium is easier in the tropics because we don't have to wear these big gloves to protect our hands from the cold. So I guess as well as seeing differences, amazing differences in our marine life, so we have to see with corals um, and coral reefs in tropical areas, um, there are, I guess, practical differences that do make things a little bit easier to work in warmer waters. Well, we're going to wrap up now with our museum in a minute quick fire round. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Favourite museum object? Is a giant clam shell. What did you want to be when you grew up? I wanted to be a vet. Favourite museum memory? Probably receiving a thylacine skull for one of our exhibitions. Favourite thing about your career? Uh, the favourite moment was um, being awarded the uh, Queensland Young Topography Scientist of the Year Award in recognition of my research, which was really exciting and amazing. Brilliant. What would you prefer to do, work in the field or in the office? The field, probably. If you could do another job in a museum for a day, what would it be? 
Something like being a CEO or on the board. What do people think you do at work? I think people think I show people around the museum displays. And that's our minute. Thank you very much, Sue Ann. Thanks, Laura. Thanks for having me. I just think I'd like to add that we have the citizen science program, which is a way that people can get involved if they're interested in the work. It's actually called REDMAP, which is, stands for the Range Extension Database and Mapping Project. What we're really trying to do is map the movement of marine animals along Queensland's coast and indeed the whole coast of Australia as our ocean temperatures warm. So if you're interested, you can go in and check it out online and we're getting a new mobile app soon. But basically, if you see animals in your local spot that you haven't seen before, just take a photo, submit it onto the web map app or on the online on the web, and then they'll be checked by independent scientists and the data used will contribute to investigating how quickly species are moving south with our warming waters. Fantastic. We'll include a link in the show notes. Thanks for joining us on the Museum Reveal podcast. Interested in uncovering more stories? Click the follow button to be notified of the latest podcast episodes. You can follow Queensland Museum on social media at at QLD Museum or head to our website at qm.qld.gov.au news list to be the first to know what's on at our museums. Until next time, stay curious.